Please turn with me in your Bible to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. For those who may be visiting, we have just begun the book of Acts, and if you've been here the last couple weeks, you would barely know that because we haven't spent much time in Acts just yet, and this is another one of those kind of strange introductory sermons. So, can I give the caveats, as I often do at the beginning? Similar caveats to last Sunday, which may make you want to run for the door right now. Here are the caveats. This sermon is unusually dense. You're like, great. Number two, this sermon is also going to be a little bit on the long side. I won't give you a number of minutes. And, and, but number three, here's the good part. Here's the good thing. I am strongly persuaded, there's a number of good scholars arguing this, I think they've got great cases to make, I am strongly persuaded that the book of Isaiah has tremendous influence on the entire New Testament, but I'm going to say specifically on Luke-Acts. Remember, those are two parts by the same author, Luke and Acts. And I am convinced that Isaiah has a huge influence on how Luke both wrote his gospel and how he wrote Acts. And so, I want to sort of spend a good bit of the sermon today in Isaiah. Now, uh, Isaiah is one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament, and it's also one of the least read <laughs> books of the Bible by Christians today, probably. I mean, what do we know about Isaiah? We, we know Isaiah 6, perhaps, holy, 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 Isaiah's vision. We have probably know the Christmas verses. You know, his name is uh, Mighty God, you know, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. We probably know something about Isaiah 40, John the Baptist, make a, you know, the voice in the wilderness, make way the way of the Lord. And we probably certainly know Isaiah 53, uh, the suffering servant. Now, those are wonderful texts. I want to try to give a little bit more, I want to fill in some more of the gaps and try to give a bigger picture of Isaiah. You say, well, why? We're not in Isaiah. Because this really will lay some groundwork that I'm going to keep coming back to as we go through Acts, and I think also, I think the book of Isaiah sheds a lot of light on the opening chapters of the book of Acts and even the text I would like to get to today. So, who is ready for dense and long? Can I get a hallelujah? Wow, okay. Someone is being paid off is all I can believe right now. Okay, uh, Isaiah. So, l let me just say something about Isaiah. My, my, my dad, who I greatly love and respect, uh, preached through the book of Isaiah a few years back, and I think it took him eight years to prepare. I don't think that's an exaggeration. He, he worked on it about eight years out uh, every week, Scott can testify, and he spent a couple hours a week for eight years working on Isaiah. And I, as I've looked into Isaiah, I'm like, yeah, that's about right. That's about how much time you should spend. <laughs> and so, my dad preached chapter by chapter through the whole book something that I am not yet prepared to do, but maybe one day. Uh, so today we're going to give uh, more of an overview of the book and zero in on some important points that will be picked up by Luke, I believe, in the book of Acts. So let me just break it down in the most simplified possible way. Um, this, this is really simple. You can think of Isaiah as taking place in two major pieces. If you want to jot some of this down, that, that may help you. You don't have to do that. But chapters 1 through 39 is sort of the first massive portion of Isaiah, 1 to 39. And then chapters 40 to 66, the, the last chapter of the book. Now, you can subdivide it much more than that, but let's just keep it at least somewhat manageable. So, you've got Isaiah 1 to 39 and Isaiah 40 to 66. Now, in Isaiah 1 to 39, 
uh, largely, now I will go ahead and tell you, I, with no reservation, despite liberal scholarship, believe Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah entire, in, in its entirety. I got nothing for the idea that there are multiple authors later on after Isaiah died. I'm not even going to go there. The John 12 quotes from the first and second half of Isaiah and says it was written by Isaiah. So I'm going to go with John 12 and Jesus on that one, not with modern German liberal scholarship. Anyways, okay, we're going to keep moving here. So, uh, I think Jesus probably knew more about Isaiah than modern liberal scholarship. I'm just going to throw that out there as a possibility. So, one author, a whole book, but here's what makes it so interesting. Much of 1 to 39 is dealing with things that are happening in Isaiah's day, and he is dealing with an issue that takes place basically in 701 B.C. Around 701 B.C. is when the big evil army of starts with an A, Assyria is on the move, and they are going to destroy the northern kingdom in basically entirely Israel. Then they're going to come to the southern kingdom, and they're going to wipe out city after city after city, and then they're going to make it to the city of Jerusalem. And they're about to conquer Jerusalem, and God, through a mighty miracle, sends out His angel, destroying uh, the vast majority of Sennacherib's army in one night, and Sennacherib hightails it back to Assyria. So God saves Jerusalem. And you get to the end of Isaiah 39. And there's this warning. The king, Hezekiah, is starting to sort of become buddies with some of the Babylonians. Now, you say, what's, what's Babylon? Well, you remember who conquers Assyria and takes over as the world ruling power? It's Babylon. They come afterwards. So, after Isaiah's day, Isaiah saw the future. This is why liberal scholarship doesn't think Isaiah wrote it. Listen, if Isaiah was not inspired, could he accurately predict the future? No. But, but he, he was inspired by God the Holy Spirit, so God could tell him ahead of time what was going to happen. And so, what does Isaiah see? Isaiah 39 is a massive break, and you jump ahead well over a century into the future, 150 plus years into the future, and, and, and even beyond, far beyond. What happens? Isaiah then sees past Assyria, and then he sees past Babylon conquering Jerusalem. Will Babylon one day actually conquer the city of Jerusalem? Yes. In 586, it totally falls. Daniel is taken captive with his friends to Babylon. Ezekiel, the prophet, is in Babylon. Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem all around the same time. Jerusalem falls. And Bab uh, Jer Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah gets this word from the Lord of hope for the distant future. Yes, Babylon will be used by God to discipline Israel, but is that the last word? No. In the prophets, remember, Almost any prophet you pick up, here the, here's a three-word summary of, I can just tell you, pick up a prophet, three words, sin, judgment, hope. Just pick up a prophet, you'll find those three themes in there. Are the people of God sinning? Shockingly, yes. Is God going to bring disciplinary judgment? Yes, if they don't repent. And finally, is there always a, a glimmer of hope? Yes. And so, Isaiah spends much of 40 to 66 looking forward, hopefully, to the great future. And at the very end of Isaiah, you have a renewed Jerusalem and a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, which is where the whole Bible ends with God restoring all of creation. So, are, you, are we kind of on the same page here? the basic overview. Now we're going to get into some details, and this is where it gets into the dense part. So, let's just kind of, we're going to kind of move through quickly getting highlights here just to get a feel for what's happening. Let's look at the very beginning of the book, verse 1 of Isaiah 1. The word of the Lord here. 
the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Do you see the theme of sin? Look at verse 18. God says to this nation, and implicitly also to all, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then listen to this intense language, verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Okay, see sin? Now look at judgment, verse 30 and 31. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water, and the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So sin, and there's judgment. Now, where's hope? These are famous verses, chapter 2. These are so good. 2, 1 through 4. Look with me here. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house, that's the temple of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So is salvation going to come for, for Jerusalem? Yes. Now look at the end of verse 3. For out of Zion shall go forth the law the, and the word of the Lord from where? Jerusalem. So, the, so there's a prediction. A salvation act is going to take place in Jerusalem, and God's word is going to go forth from Jerusalem. His word is going to go forth from Jerusalem. Turn with me to chapter 6. Now, without reading this familiar passage, let me just summarize here. If you've ever heard of R.C. Sproul, you know all about Isaiah 6, because he's got some of the best teaching on this chapter you will ever find in your life. Um, what happens? Isaiah has a vision of God, holy, 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 high and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Above him were the seraphim, these incredible, mysterious angels who were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook. The whole place was full of smoke. And Isaiah says, not woe are they, woe am I. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, that's the part we know really well. And then remember what happens? An angel takes a burning coal, puts it against Isaiah's lips, those very lips that he would use for years to prophesy. And he says, okay, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And the Lord said, who will go for us to preach? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And I, you know, if I'm Isaiah, now I'm starting to get excited. I'm about to be commissioned by the Lord to preach to Israel. This is going to be a glorious ministry. And God says, okay. Isaiah says, what do I preach? How do I do this? And the Lord says, 
keep on preaching until no one listens. Uh, excuse me? Keep on preaching. Until no, look at the commission here. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to me, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their, heart, their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, those are astonishing words. What does that mean? When someone, and I say this just honestly and humbly, when someone's heart is turned against the Lord, hearing the truth only makes them more hostile to that truth. When God's Word is preached, the Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax in the heat hardens the clay. And so, a heart that is like clay underneath the Word of God doesn't become softer, it becomes harder, more resistant. And a heart that is tender becomes more malleable and more movable by, by God's grace. And, and so, Isaiah says, he's going to preach until judgment falls on the nation. And you know what the analogy is when judgment comes? It is like someone cutting down a forest of trees. So if the nation of Israel is like a forest of trees growing and healthy and strong, these Assyrian and Babylonian invasions are like calling the, you know, the tree company in, you know, into your neighborhood, like, hey, we need, we need to cut down all these trees. And they come out there and they just level the playing field. They knock down all the cities. They kill a lot of the people. They take people hostage. They take people captive to exile. They knock down all the trees, including the Davidic kingdom right? You can't reign as king if you're in another land in prison, right? So they cut down even the tree of David and Jesse, but what's left? A stump with a holy seed. In other words, a sprout is going to come out of that stump that was cut down, the kingdom that looks like it has a hopeless future. A shoot will rise out of Jesse, a, a holy seed out of the stump, and he will bring forth righteousness. Who's that? That's the Lord Jesus. So, so look with me here, flip to the right to chapter 9. These are our Christmas verses a little early right now, I suppose, but I will read them anyway. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, here's that shoot out of the stump, right? Here, here's that promised Messiah. For to us a child is born, Isaiah 9, 6. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of who? David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and right, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, let me just, a little parenthesis, this is completely beside the point. We'll come back later. Look at verse 9, or verse 8 and 9. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in Okay, pause right there. Do you see? It's just a side note for later. Ephraim is the name of one of the 12 tribes, and he represents the northern tribes. 
okay? Everybody with me? Ephraim represents the northern tribes, which are also called Samaria. Store that in your mind for, for later on. Okay, so we'll go back here. So turn with me to Isaiah 11, to the right. I tried to at least do this in order. At least, so we're going to the right. Isaiah chapter 11. This is an amazing promise. Don't forget the stump of David, and David's dad's name was Jesse. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 11, and uh, you can see here this description of how the people of God have been cut down. Look at, look at 1034. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There, this is 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the descendant of David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked." Reminds me of 2 Thessalonians, when the Antichrist lawless one appears, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth, referring back to this text. So, this individual is full of the Holy Spirit. He is marked by the Spirit. He is full of the Spirit. He has the Spirit beyond measure. He does what is right. He brings forth justice. He does what is true. He is not marked by sin. He is not marked by iniquity. He is marked by commitment to God's will. Look with me a little later in chapter 11. Verse 11, start in verse 10 actually, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. This is where they were scattered from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And look what will happen to the people of God. The jealousy of Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, shall depart. And those who harass Judah, that's the southern kingdom, shall be cut off. Ephraim, the northern kingdom, shall not be jealous of Judah, the southern kingdom, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. There's unity there. Look at verse 16. There shall be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains for his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Now, do you see? He's saying, when I bring my people out of exile from these nations, and I bring them back home, it will be like when I brought them out of what country? Egypt. It's going to be a new exodus. That's what, that's what he's getting at here. Okay, turn with me to Isaiah 32. Skipping ahead here. You're like, it's good that we're speeding up. That's good. We skipped a lot of chapters. We're moving, okay? Uh, Isaiah 32. And as Isaiah predicts the destruction of Israel and Judah by these foreign nations, he talks about how things are going to be in disrepair until, until something happens. Look with me here at verse, this is Isaiah 32, verse 12. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars, yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant, in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, 
The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Do you see? This is destruction. What will, make, what will be the turning point? Verse 15, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field a, is deemed a forest. Now, do you see here? God is predicting there's sin and there's judgment. Israel will be laid waste like a forest knocked down. Is that the last word? Is judgment the last word? No. He says, okay, here's what's going to happen. The turning point where everything turns is when the Spirit is poured out from on high. Everybody got that? The, the pouring out of the Spirit is the turning point in this situation. Okay, turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 40. No doubt you'll recognize these. These are quoted all over the place in the New Testament with John the Baptist's ministry. Look with me at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert the highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, turn with me to Isaiah 42. Now, when you get there, look up here for a moment. I want to try to set this next part up. This is a little tricky when you're reading Isaiah. If you've read the second half of Isaiah, 40 to 66, you've probably noticed this figure, the servant of the Lord. Now, here's what makes this figure complicated, because we think of Isaiah 53, right? But it's, it's complicated. You've got a figure called the servant of the Lord who is righteous, seemingly looks pretty clear, sinless, okay, suffering for other people's sin. But then there's another individual called the exact same thing. Now, see if this doesn't confuse you. Another individual called the servant of the Lord, called Israel, who is constantly stubborn, rebellious, and sinful. Now, when you read this the first time, you're like, wait, is this one, is this one individual? It can't be. Sometimes they're sinful, sometimes they're perfect. What's going on? So, I want to try to break this down a little bit, and I want to show you that there's two different uh, reference for this servant of the Lord. So, look with me at Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. This is a good reference. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, does that sound familiar to what we've already read? That should sound like the Davidic king, this, the shoot out of the stump of Jesse, who's filled with the spirit and bringing forth justice. Does this sound like a good individual? Yes. Now it gets, it gets a little bit confusing here. Look, look, so, 
the servant, right? Now look at later in the same chapter, 42 verse 18, the Lord again refers to someone as my servant, but see if this sounds different, 42, 18. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but who? My servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? Now, do you see the weird thing here? So everybody just think for a second. The Lord says, my servant, full of the Spirit, brings forth righteousness, always does what is right. Later in the same chapter, my servant is deaf and can't see or understand. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense if he's referring to one individual. So, I'm going to argue there are two different servants of the Lord. And let me try to develop this for a few minutes. Turn with me to chapter 43, right next to us. Not only are they both called the servant of the Lord, they're both called Israel, which should make it even more confusing. So, 43 verse 1, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I've called you, and you are mine. Look at verse 5. He calls them out of exile. I won't read it right now. Look at verse 10. This is what he says to Israel, his servant, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior." I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Okay, so we've got God's people are called also here His witnesses. Remember that for just a moment from now. Okay, look at chapter 49. Chapter 49. This may be the strangest of them all. Isaiah 49, in the first few verses, listen carefully to these words. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me, okay, who is this? The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He hid me, He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, so who is this individual? You are my servant, what? Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Okay, now up to this point, you would think it's referring to Israel, the nation. My servant, Israel. But it can't be. Look at verse 5. And the Lord says, the Lord now says, he who formed me, the same individual, from the womb to be his servant, to do what? Two big things. To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Now, you understand, he can't be Israel if his job is to gather Israel. You understand that? You can't say, hey, Tom, go find Tom for me. Right? You don't do that. So, this servant called Israel, is, his mission is to go regather the tribes of Jacob and to reconstitute Israel. He's called to go get Israel. So, he can't be the same as that group, right? He's a representative of that group. 
What else is his job? So he's going re- to regather Israel. Number two, into verse five. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Verse six, he says to this servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved ones of Israel. You see, he can't be them because he's getting them. What else is he going to do? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, is this starting to become interesting? Imagine reading this in the Old Testament time. God goes, my servant, blind, dumb, and rebellious, Israel. And he goes, my servant, Israel, full of the Spirit and righteousness. He's going to go save Israel. Your brain would explode until you said, okay, wait, he must be referring to two different distinct entities. One is the nation, which is blind, rebellious, and sinful. The other is a representative of the nation, which is the son of David, the Davidic king, right, who who himself represents Israel. Now, his job is to regather Israel and to reach the nations. Now, look with me at chapter 50. See if it starts sounding more clear from our vantage point what's going on. 50 verse 4. This is the same servant figure here. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, so he's not deaf, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now do you see what's happening? This is not Israel the nation. This is Israel's representative. This is a future son of David. And what's going to happen to him? He, for the sake of this sinful people, is going to have stripes on his back, and he's going to have his beard pulled out of his face for the sins of his people. He's referred to his servant in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice voice of his servant? Okay, turn with me to 52. You knew we were going to get here. 52 verse 13. Look with me at 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 the word servant. 52 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Pause. Those are the same words used to describe God in Isaiah 6. He was high and lifted up, same exact words. So this servant has a description that only is given to God in Isaiah, is given to this son of David servant figure. That's interesting. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which uh, has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a what? Root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Look at verse 11. 
after he bears our judgment, out of the anguish of his soul, he, the servant, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, turn with me to the right to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So what are we learning from Isaiah? This is very tedious. We're reading a lot of passages. Don't usually read this many passages in one sermon. Uh, Why are we doing this? Okay, so number one thing we learn that from Isaiah's vantage point, the Davidic king is going to come to save his people and to be a light to the nation. So look look with me, uh, Luke 1, verse 31. The angel talking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Luke 1, 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus is the Davidic king. Turn with me to Luke 22, toward the back of Luke's gospel. Luke 22. As you are turning there, this is the night of Jesus' betrayal, the Thursday night, and he will be crucified the next morning. And just listen briefly here. Uh, Luke 22, look down at verse 37. Because we're also told that the coming one is the servant of the Lord from Isaiah 53. Uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Here's what Jesus says about himself. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he quotes Isaiah 53, 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So number two, the servant of the Lord, Jesus sees it clearly as referring to himself. That should be pretty obvious. Look at Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke's gospel. I have always found this little paragraph fascinating. Look, at, look with me, Luke 24, verse 44. This is, the day, this is right after the resurrection of Jesus, before his ascension. Luke 24, 44. Jesus says to his followers, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, so here is what Jesus is getting from the Old Testament, thus it is written that the Christ should first suffer, second on the third day rise from the dead, number three, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Number four, beginning from where? Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Does from on high, you remember that phrase? When is the turning point going to happen in Isaiah? Everything's lying in waste. When is the turning point when the exile begins to truly come to an end and the kingdom starts to come when the Spirit is poured out on you from on high? Luke is intentionally pulling back to that text, and Jesus is, is intentionally looking back to that text. Okay, now we come to our text for today's sermon. You're like, please make it stop. Go to Acts chapter 1. Go to Acts chapter 1.
I'm just going to ask your patience because this is long and tedious. I'm going to go longer here. So just, this is, a, this is the seventh inning stretch, okay? And uh, just hang with me here for these last uh, few minutes as we talk through our passage and see if you can see how Isaiah is playing into what Luke writes. So we'll start with the first verse. Uh, Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Isaiah is all about the restoration of that kingdom, the fall and the rising of that kingdom. Verse 4, and while they were staying with Him, He ordered them not to depart from what city? Because, according to Isaiah, where does it all start? It starts, the saving act of God starts in Jerusalem, and it goes out from Jerusalem, right? That's what Isaiah said. So, Jesus says, you got to wait. You can't go somewhere else. This has to happen in Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father. Okay, now just a little mental, mental exercise. That phrase, promise of the Father, was just mentioned at the end of Luke 24, and the promise of the Father was the Spirit being poured out from on high, okay? So, he's got that text in his mind. That matters for this next part. You see how Isaiah is just right in the background. Which you heard, which uh, the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see how being baptized by the Spirit is the Spirit being poured out from on high? This is the turning point. This is the, this is the massive turning point in redemptive history when the Spirit is poured out. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you see why they would have thought that question to ask? Isaiah says, listen, Israel's going to be shredded, torn apart, trees knocked down. There's going to be a holy stump. There's going to be a coming son of David. There's going to be a coming suffering servant. Jesus clearly is the son of David. He's clearly the suffering servant. He died for sin. He had stripes on his back that we deserved. He had the beard pulled out of his face that we deserve, that kind of torture. He was marred beyond human recognition. He died on a cross like an animal, cursed of God, even though he had never done anything wrong. What's going on? Isaiah says there are two entities named Israel who are his servant. One is blind, deaf, and rebellious, constantly rebelling and deserves his wrath and judgment. The other Israel, the other servant of the Lord, is anointed by the Spirit, always does what is right, is perfectly innocent. There was no violence or deceit in his mouth, yet he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He dies for the sins of the people. Now, do you see? This is in the background. And then Isaiah says, okay, the, things look hopeless until the Spirit is poured out from on high. And so Jesus talks to them for 40 days about what? The Spirit's coming. They're thinking Isaiah. This is Ezekiel 36. This is new covenant language. They're thinking what? The, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. A month with Jesus talking about the kingdom. You're thinking He's going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now. Pentecost, the Romans are going to be kicked out. Spirit's poured out. There's going to be a physical, political nation of Israel established right here and now. Jesus is going to reign from David's throne. He doesn't need to go back to heaven. He can do that right here. And we're going to reign. We're going to bring the Gentiles in. And it's going to be awesome. We're going to fulfill the promises to God. Do you see why they're asking that question? They're soaked in the Old Testament in a way that, frankly, I'm not. Right? So, this is just a side point. We need to read our Old Testament so that the New Testament makes more sense. 
The, the New Testament left to itself can, can still make sense to, to, a, to a child in many ways, but the depths and the dimensions of what's happening are soaked and layered by Old Testament language. The, the way that we're familiar with movie references and TV show references, like you, you know, somebody can reference The Office and everyone knows what we're talking about, they were like that. About, they didn't have Netflix, they had the Old Testament. What they did all day long was they read the prophets, they read the historical books, they read the Psalms. They knew, children knew the Old Testament backwards. And so, when you say, from on high, they know it like we know, for God so loved. Right? I mean, they're so soaking wet with the Old Testament that when you say, from on high, they go, Isaiah 32, 15. There weren't verses at the time, but they knew where it was in the scroll. They could find it like that. And so, Luke just assumes a, a knowledge here of the Old Testament. So you see what their question is, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, there is enormous debate. I don't know how, I mean, there's enormous debate about how Jesus' answer is a response to their question. Are you ready for His answer? You're like, we've been ready for 73 minutes. Yes, we are ready for the answer. Here we go. Verse 7, He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, those from a more dispensational perspective, as I mentioned last Sunday, take the answer, I mean, I hope I'm representing this correctly. Um, the idea basically here is that Jesus says, listen, Jesus is going to do all that stuff physically, literally to Israel in this earth, in this age, but that's going to be in the millennium later on in the future. Don't worry about the timing of that. In the meantime, we have a kind of a, a separate task to accomplish, which is the church age, and we need to preach the gospel to all nations. They take it basically as Jesus is not answering their question at all. He, he's saying, listen, don't worry about the timing of the restoration. That's going to come in the millennium. That's a long time from now. Don't worry about, you know, your little end-time chart trying to figure that thing out. Good luck with that, by the way. Not going to work that out. And uh, everyone who's predicted it has been wrong so far, so keep trying if you want to, but let's not go there. It's a waste of time. Don't worry about when I'm coming back to do that. Instead, um, let's worry about Jews and Gentiles coming to the church, preaching the gospel to the nations. There, there's another view that, uh, that takes a different view, but I, I, I want to I want to give you an argument here that I think Jesus is not sidestepping their question. I think He's answering their question. And I think there's about five reasons, maybe more, maybe six, just in verse 8, for why I think He is actually answering their question about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel in verse 8. Verse 8 is super famous, but I don't know how well it is understood sometimes. Look, look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, do you hear Isaiah in that verse? The promise of the Father is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the promise of the Father goes back to Isaiah 32, 15, from on high. That's one reference to Isaiah's restoration of the kingdom. Is he answering the question about the restoration of the kingdom? That allusion is back to Isaiah's restoration of the kingdom. Number two, you will be my witnesses. What did he say to Israel when he brings them back? You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You, three times in Isaiah, 43 and 44, he tells, he tells them, as you come back, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. So there's another reference to the restoration of the kingdom, right? Number three, and to the end of the earth. And to the end of the earth. Remember Isaiah 49, 6? You will be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore those of Israel, and you'll be a light to the nations to bring my salvation to the end of the earth. Exact same phrase in Greek. Okay? So, 
there's another reference to the restoration of the kingdom from Isaiah. Number four, did Isaiah say this would start in Jerusalem? Yeah, he says it starts in Jerusalem. Number five, and this is the one that I just think gets missed. I, I have grown up my whole life thinking that Acts 1.8 is about concentric circles about where you are in relationship to the Great Commission. So, your Jeru- you know, what is your Jerusalem? It's Athens right now, and what's your Judea? That's the state of Georgia, and what's your Samaria? Maybe that's like the United States, and then what's the ends of the earth? It's all the other nations. I've heard that. I'm not trying to make fun of people, but I've just heard that. That's every sermon I've ever heard on Acts 1.8. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's saying, what's the question? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what's his answer? Let me talk about Israel. Let's talk about the capital of Israel. Let's talk about the southern kingdom. Let's talk about the northern kingdom. And let's talk about God reuniting them in Christ. That's what he's saying. So, what's the capital of Israel? Jerusalem. What's the southern kingdom? Judea. What's the northern kingdom called? Ephraim and Samaria. So, Jesus is saying, okay, yes, God is going to begin to restore the kingdom to Israel in the next few chapters of Acts. Pentecost, the only people converted are Jews in Jerusalem. Hmm, that sounds like return from exile, a remnant is saved. Then what happens? The gospel reaches Judea. That's the southern kingdom. Then what does it reach? It reaches Samaria, the northern kingdom. Then what happens? The apostles go from Jerusalem to Samaria, lay their hands on them, they receive the Spirit, showing a unification between the northern and southern tribes that hasn't existed since Solomon died. Is God restoring the kingdom to Israel? At least in part, yes, He is right now. And then what happens next? After this reunification of the northern and southern tribes, after that happens, you get to, you get to Acts 9.31, and it says, the church singular in Samaria, Galilee, and Judea was at peace. Has He reunited the northern and southern tribe in Christ? Yes, the beginning of the reunification of Israel. Remember Isaiah 11? The northern tribes will no longer be jealous of the southern tribes, and the southern tribes will no longer hate the northern tribes. They will be united in this Messiah. And what happens? In Acts 9.31, you have peace amongst those three geographic regions, Judea, Galilee, Samaria. What is that? Those are the, those are the geographical boundary markers of Old Testament Israel. Why name that? Why say it's at peace? Because Jesus is answering their question. This is the beginning of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. And when you get to Acts 9.31, not a single Gentile has been converted. That's amazing. You could argue the Ethiopian eunuch, we'll talk about that later. I don't think he's a Gentile, that's debatable. Uh, That doesn't matter. Here's the main point. With that one possible exception, which we could talk about later on, I don't think there's been a single Gentile conversion when you get to Acts 9.31. Why? Because God is first going to reconstitute the the kingdom to Israel, and then He's going to reach the nation. So what happens? Acts 9.31, you have the geographical boundary markers of Old Testament Israel are at peace and being built up in the Lord. That is the beginning of the reconstitution of the kingdom of Israel, at least in remnant form. And then what happens? You get to Acts chapter 10, and they spend two chapters talking about the salvation of one Gentile and his family. Why? Because after the peace has been restored to the northern and southern tribes, starting from the capital, what do you do? You reach the nations. Do you see how the Old Testament background starts to shed light? I wasn't wasting your time. Okay, this, this actually matters. So, so let's reread it again. Acts 1.6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Pause. The fullness of the kingdom is not coming until Jesus returns, and we'll never know that date. But is it going to start now? I think it starts at Pentecost the restoration of the kingdom. Verse 8, but you will receive power when first Isaiah reference, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, second Isaiah reference, in Jerusalem, third uh, Isaiah reference, in all Judea and Samaria, next Isaiah reference, and to the end of the earth. That's five references to the restoration of the kingdom in Isaiah in one verse. And I, I spent almost my whole life not seeing any of them. 
So I actually think Jesus has answered their question. He said, it's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to move out to the southern and northern kingdoms. They're going to be united in the church, in the gospel. And then we're going to, we're going to try to look at how the Gentiles are brought into God's people, moving into Acts 10 and following. Piece of life application that I really am done. Um, even though I sort of, ha- sort of took a slight at how Acts 1-8 is sometimes used, there is still a massive application of Acts 1-8 to your life and mine. In a sense, there is that sense of what, what is the Lord calling you to do in your witness to others. So, being really practical right now, as the Lord is working His kingdom through this world, Remember, it's, it's a slow thing. The smallest seed in the garden slowly becomes the largest tree. God's kingdom works slowly in many imperceptible ways. I mean, come on, just hearing Carter's incredible testimony, thinking about all these guys who poured their lives into that Bible study. At the, the first night of that Bible study, it may not have looked like some big oak tree. It may have looked like you're just planting a small seed in the ground. You're going, I hope the Lord uses this. It's the way I feel with almost everything I do, right? Usually, I hope the Lord uses this little act, this little act of faithfulness. And what happens? Over a period of years, you have a tree growing up out of the soil. The Lord works through us to advance His kingdom in this world. And wherever we're at, there are people we can witness to. There are people we can share the good news with. Uh, there are people at work, roommates, family members, friends, loved ones, who we, strangers, people that we owe this good news to. And so let us, with confidence, hearing this testimony earlier, go out into the world to witness to others, to invite them to know this Christ who has offered salvation for sinners like all of us. And that if we turn from sin and trust in His finished work, we will be saved because the suffering servant who never sinned suffered in the place of sinners like you and me. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the patience and the, and the attention of, of everyone in this room right now. Uh, Lord, help us in, in our lives. We, we want to have the Spirit-filled courage of Peter, who stood up on the day of Pentecost just 10 days after this moment and preached in front of the very same people, some of them who called out for Jesus' death just two months earlier. And he preached with boldness, knowing it could cost him his life like it would later cost Stephen his life and like it earlier cost Jesus his life. God, give us not not arrogance. We we do not want arrogance. Give us brokenhearted courage and boldness to be straightforward and upright with your word. As Paul says, by the open statement of truth that we would present your word before everyone's conscience in the sight of God and to speak such a way in Christ. Give us boldness and courage that you do keep your word, that you will keep your word, and that your kingdom will come, your will will be done on earth as in heaven when you restore this world and make it like it was always meant to be, a new heavens and a new earth uh, with your city Jerusalem present. So God, please do this and more, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.